I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about An Affair to Remember, which is a 1957 romance that was directed by Leo McCary. The plot is, we can argue about whether it is straightforward or kind of convoluted, but uh, handsome playboy Nikki Ferrante, played by Cary Grant, um, and a beautiful former nightclub singer named Terry McKay, played by Deborah Carr, meet on an ocean liner returning to New York from Europe. He's a cosmopolitan womanizer who's used to getting what he wants, and he's on his way home to settle down with an ultra-rich heiress whose inheritance will keep him in the lifestyle to which he's become accustomed. She is a witty Boston-born singer who's been whisked into New York society by a well-to-do fiancé. Despite their respective engagements, Nikki and Terry fall in love on the crossing, and their romance is cemented when... On a port call, they go to visit his grandmother in the French Hills. Just before their boat pulls into New York City, uh, they vow that if in six months they, they're still in love, and if Nikki has found a way to earn his own living, they will meet at the top of the Empire State Building. Tragedy intercedes, leaving Terry unable to walk. She refuses to track Nikki down until she's recovered the use of her legs, and then fate intervenes. I have so many things to say about this movie. Yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis, though. <laughs> I found quite a bit of trivia about this movie, so I have a few tidbits to share. So the first thing is, when you were watching the movie, I don't know if you were like aware of just how old Cary Grant is in this movie in 1957, um, but Cary Grant, the actor, was 53 years old, which oh. meant he was only 15 years younger than Kathleen Nesbitt. Who is playing his grandmother? Oh my gosh. I did think he looked older, but he wore it well, and I would not have guessed that he was in his 50s. I mean, I was trying to like play it against his, you know, n- knowing that we were just like five years from Charade, where he seems dashing and charming, but old. Yeah. yeah. I wonder um, if he was dyeing his hair in this movie, because I think one of the things that made him look younger was his hair. Oh, yeah. So the other thing that might have made him look look, look younger was that he started smoking in 1911, and he gave up his 60-cigarette-a-day habit, <laughs> which I don't even know. Like, how do you even... That's a lot of cigarettes in a day. That's a lot. Yeah. I um, mean, you're assuming you're sleeping some of the hours in a day. <laughs> it's just... That's a lot of cigarettes. Like, how do you do anything but smoke? So he he gave the that habit up during filming of this movie. So he might have had an extra spring spring to his step because he finally could breathe. Oh my gosh! I now with that knowledge, I feel like he pretty much cheated God with how well he looks in this movie. Yes. <laughs> Which I mean, that also means that he started smoking when he was like a child. So uh, this director apparently liked to let his actors improvise a lot, and Deborah Carr and. Cary Grant did improvise many of the scenes. I certainly couldn't tell anything. No, but it, it makes sense. Yeah. It seemed very natural. It did. Although that makes me think, like, they must have actually been just incredibly witty, charming people themselves <laughs> to be able to keep that up. Yeah. So, interestingly, both Ingrid Bergman and Doris Day were considered for the part of Terry McKay before Deborah Carr was finally cast, which I feel like this would have been a very different movie if either one of those people were cast yeah 
I don't... Did, did Ingrid Bergman sing at all? She sang in, the, like, Gaslight, I think she... There's a, a number... Or there's a couple of movies where she sings, like, a few lines. Deborah Carr doesn't sing in this movie. Um, oh, really? She, she's not actually singing. This is another piece of trivia. For the number of songs that are in this movie, I don't know why they didn't, like, just hire a, an actual singer, but she was dubbed by Marnie Nixon, who also dubbed her in The King and I, which was... Uh, released the previous year in 1956 and Marnie Nixon was also the singing voice of Natalie Wood in West Side Story. Audrey Hepburn is Eliza Doolittle in um, My Fair Lady. Plus she sang the voices of the angels Ingrid Bergman heard in the movie Joan of Arc. Marnie Nixon Whoa. was apparently this like she was the singing voice of a lot of actors who didn't sing or she was very rarely credited. Well if it, so for this movie I did write in my notes covert musical. <laughs> I know. And... I know. I was thinking about you when we were listening. Like the second time the children were singing, I was like, "What are we watching? Is this a musical?" I know. Actually, I fast forwarded through the second time the children were singing. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh. if the music was so non-essential to this movie, then like if she couldn't sing, why go to all that trouble? Yeah, just for like the fact that she was a nightclub singer. Like you didn't actually. You could have just put her in one of the beautiful gowns that she was wearing and just say, this is her on her way to her act. I don't yeah. know. So Deborah Carr plays Terry McKay, which was previously pay- played by Irene Dunn in Love Affair, which was the like very first version of this movie. Love Affair slash An Affair to Remember, they were both remade in 1994, I think, where Catherine Hepburn plays the grandmother. Um, both Love Affair and the first one, the 1939 version, and An Affair to Remember were directed by Leo McCary. In 1956, Deborah Carr played Anna Leon Owens in The King and I, which is also a role that had previously been played by Irene Dunn in the black and white film version of Anna and the King of Siam, which was made in 1946. Twice, Deborah Carr played a character that had been originated in a film version by Irene Dunn. Do you think they have similar vibes? I don't know. I can't actually... I don't remember if I've ever seen a movie with Irene Dunn in it. I thought... I mean, the one... I have not seen a lot of Deborah Carr, although after reading her bio, I realized I've seen more of her than I thought. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) the one thing that struck me about her is that she has a very different look Mm -hmm. than a lot of the other actresses from this time. I don't know if I think she does look like Irene Dunn, but anyhow. Yeah. The only other trivia that I found was that I thought was worth mentioning was that um, this movie, An Affair to Remember, is referred to a lot in Sleepless in Seattle, which was made in 1993. And by that time, the movie had kind of uh, waned in popular culture and um, Sleepless in Seattle revitalized the public's interest in An Affair to Remember and um, addition, an additional two million copies of like the VHS of um, An Affair to Remember were sold um, after Sleepless in Seattle came out, which is crazy. Yeah, I was thinking of, uh, so not to jump ahead, but I have not seen this movie before, and there are so many references to meeting at the top of the Empire State Building, like across popular culture, to the point where I don't know which are references to this and which are references to references to this. (laughs) I know, I know. Yeah, although, for someone like me who's afraid of heights, <laughs> yeah, I could I never have hung out there for, like, five hours the way Carrie Grant did. Yeah. I would have just been like, all right, I'm done. Like, I'm out. <laughs> I'll meet you at the base. 
Yeah, I'll see you at the bottom of the steps. <laughs> so, well, that was good trivia. So I bio Deborah Carr, who I found out is a Scottish lass, which made me <laughs> like her more. <laughs> yes. Uh, she was born on September 30th, 1921, um, in Helensburg, Scotland, and she was the daughter of Captain Arthur Kerr Trimmer, um, who had served in World War One and was gassed there. And I believe lost a leg also. Oh, jeez. Um, she was educated at Northumberland House, Clifton, Bristol. And her aunt, who was a radio star, got her stage work when she was a teenager. And her first appearance on the West End stage was as Ellie Dunn in Heartbreak House at the Cambridge Theater in 1943. And she had actually originally thought she was going to make it in ballet, but saw that that was like not a viable career path so she pursued hmm. theater instead but i think you can see in the way she moves that she is very graceful <laughs> and has training uh, through her theater work she came to the attention of british film producer gabriel pascal who cast her in his film of george bernard shaw's major barbara in 1941 and love on the dole also in 1941 she quickly became a star of the British cinema, playing the three women in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp in 1943 and The Nun in Black Narcissus in 1947. Hmm. Uh, in 1947, she came to MGM in America, where she found success in films like The Huckster in 1947, Edward My Son in 1949, and Quo Vadis in 1951. Hmm. Um, so almost all of the roles she was playing up to this point were sort of prim and pop proper English ladies but then she took a big turn in playing uh the role of the adulteress with Burt Lancaster and from here to eternity in 1953 oh. yeah and then you know they have that famous uh -huh. rolling around on the beach scene mm -hmm. <laughs> she also achieved success on the Broadway stage in Tea and Sympathy and then reprised her role in the 1956 film version of it and the same year, she played one of her best-remembered screen roles, Mrs. Anna in The King and I, um, mm -hmm. which I have seen. Mm -hmm. And more success followed in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, which I have also seen, and which she also plays a nun, in 1957. <laughs> An Affair to Remember in 1957, Separate Tables in 58, The Sundowners in 60, The Innocents in 61, and The mm. Night of the Iguana in 1964. Uh, in 68... Have you seen The Innocents? No. I saw it on the big screen when I was probably 14 or 15, and it was... <laughs> Equal parts terrifying and, like, magnificent. It, it's probably. a horror movie, right? Yes. Don't watch it by yourself. Okay. I probably wouldn't anyway. <laughs> <laughs> With all the lights on at noon. <laughs> Was that remade? Yes, I think so. It sounds familiar to me. In 1968, she actually quit film for a time. She thought the way the industry was going was too much towards explicit sex and violence and didn't really want to be a part of that. Um, she did some stage and TV work. In the 1970s and 80s, she performed in The Awesome Garden and Hold the Dream, and then she retired from acting altogether. She holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations for Best Actress without a win. She had six for The Sundowners, Separate Tables, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, The King and I, From Here to Eternity, and Edward, My Son. And in 1994, she finally received an honorary Oscar for her screen <laughs> achievements. And she died at age 86 in 2007 from Parkinson's disease. I mean, she's clearly a gifted actor. And, like, very diverse roles. Like, if you look at 
what she was nominated for. <laughs> it's not. It's all over the place. Yeah. Um, well, what did you think of her? I love her. And I always forget how much I love her until I see her in a movie and then I think, oh boy. And it's been a while since I've seen her. So, you know, Jen watched this with me and I feel like I turned to her several times and was like, she's amazing. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was interesting to me because it almost felt like a lot of the actors from the, like, the women actors from this time who we talk about, it's very much kind of like they're known for their beauty or like that's kind of what they lead with. But with her, mm -hmm. it felt like she was leading with her personality and yeah. wit. And I liked that. Absolutely. Uh, you said you've seen this before, but you don't really, you didn't remember it that well. That's right. Okay. So did it, did you actually like, were there plot twists that you were like, Oh wait, that happens. <clears throat> I forgot that they were on the boat for so long. I for forgot that they made a stop off at the grandmother's house. I forgot that there was, half literally half the movie after they decide that they're gonna meet at the on the empire state building there's a lot of like denouement after she doesn't show, show up you know at some i just i mostly forgot how long it was <laughs> yeah it was pretty long it felt like just them being on the cruise could have been a whole movie like that whole part yeah my biggest problem with it was just that their reasons for not being together were consistently contrived. <laughs> you know, yes. like, yeah, they they have to wait six months to be together so he could try you know, <laughs> to make money or whatever. Yeah. I was like, from that painting. makes no sense. Not from whatever, from painting. <laughs> right. But he, like, could afford to go on this, like, week, like, week-long, I don't even know. Plus, his grand his grandfather was in like the foreign service and like could afford to retire to this beautiful house in France. They just like had a French villa on the Riviera. Sure, yeah, no problem. So <laughs> yes, that did make sense to me. And then... that looks like poverty to me. <laughs> the fact that when Terry gets injured. She then decides that, like, not only does that mean she can't be with him, but she's not even going to tell him. That also seemed to be false logic to me. And Right, even when the man that she was supposed to marry was like, you really need to tell him. She was like, no, I'm not going to tell him until, like, I can walk again. I was like, A, what if you never walk again? B, yeah. this guy who is, like, in love with you, obviously, is telling you you need to tell the guy that you love. Life has changed. Yeah, and it, it, it seemed like such a waste to me because, like, I know that that had to be traumatizing and a really big change for her to adapt to, but she's not, like, in a coma or something. Like, they could still be together. She, like, she has all of her mental faculties yeah. and there's no real barrier except, and she kind of took that choice away from him. Well, and if know? the premise of their... Um, like agreement is that like show up after at you know at the six month mark on the Empire State Building if you're still interested. She didn't show up, which like he took to mean she wasn't still interested. So why did which makes sense? What so why did she think that she was just gonna like convalesce without communicating with him? And when she was done convalescing, he would be available. She broke the terms of the contract. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, when she walked, and we you could see like even. Later in the film, he's still, like, checking out other women and stuff, and everyone's interested in him, so it's... 
I really yeah. highly doubt he's going to be a monk and then you're just going to show up and it's going to, and, and if I were him, I w- would have been angry. Which he know? was angry. He was like, how dare you not show up? He made up this whole like story about how like he had gone there and she wasn't there or, or yeah. no, that she had, had gone and he wasn't there. You know, just to, like, test her to see if what she would say. Yeah. Can we talk about the fact that Nikki is not a very likable character, and the only reason that he is likable is because of Cary Grant? (laughs) (laughs) Because this role, like, on I wrote, like, you don't like him. He's engaged to someone, and he's still, like, on the prowl. Yeah. On the boat. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I mean, he does have the... He is. He seems to be very sweet to his grandmother. Yeah, but I know that type. <laughs> <laughs> I know that type. They're usually like they're always like really sweet to their mothers and grandmothers, and then they're like sleeping with everyone like all over the place, leaving a trail of broken hearted women everywhere. <laughs> And I thought this movie really reinforced that whole trope of the reformed playboy, which I think is mostly made up, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, so this person's just a player until they meet the right person, and then that person gets them on the right path, because that is a woman's job, to yeah. help them to settle down. And I hate that. Well, so then this kind of, like, turns that on, on its head, because what starts down the right path, because he wants to, like, be there for her and support her as a painter... And then he, then when he thinks that she's rejected him, he kind of, you know, he doesn't go back to necessarily womanizing. He, like, goes out with the woman that he was supposed to be engaged to, but it's, you know, it doesn't seem to be, like, totally womanizing again. So it's almost that, like, you know, his heart, his heart is truly broken by Terry not showing up at the... Empire State Building, and that is a thing that like reforms him. So maybe it was a good thing that she he didn't that she didn't show up. Yeah, it was probably the first time in his life he was ever rejected <laughs> by a woman. <laughs> the first time he didn't get what he wanted. I don't know. I did love his grandmother and that villa, and like all the scenes there. I thought were really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, uh, lots of like Catholic imagery in this movie. Uh huh. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because there is a couple, like, there's the scene in the chapel in the French villa, and then, you know, she, after she loses the use of her legs, there's a priest that gives her a job at a Catholic school, which I have some questions about. Yeah, and even when he paints, the the painting he does of her and the grandmother has very sort of, had like Madonna-like qualities. Mm-hmm. Is it oh. her and the grandmother, or is it her and the Madonna in the chapel? Oh, I don't know. I think it's her praying to in the chapel. Okay, well that would make more sense, because I was like, <laughs> it looks like she's worshipping the grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why it has Madonna properties is it's <laughs> because it is her. <laughs> And, um, I mean, you can't blame me because that grandmother wore a veil the whole time. Oh, no. I mean, it was... (laughs) Well, the scene where they were both praying in the chapel and Mm -hmm. in front of the Mary statue, I just liked how there was, like, a long moment of silence. And Mm -hmm. it, it was just a really nice, quiet moment where he was sort of observing her and seeing that she was serious about it. And I... Pretty sure I had that same Mary statue in my bedroom <laughs> growing up. 
I used to turn it towards the window to ask Mary to give us a snow day the next day. <laughs> and she often did. <laughs> Thanks, um, Mary. Yeah, this was pre-climate change, so. <laughs> uh, but I thought that was a really nice scene. And, yeah, the priest was kind of like a benevolent figure. But you're right, that's cool. I was like, what is going on at this place? I have so many questions about that school. <laughs> Did she live there at the school? Did they all live at the school? Were they orphans? Do they have parents? I oh, no, they know. do have parents. Because there's the scene where that, like, big oaf is like, oh, thanks for teaching my kid how to, like, oh, I'm stupid, true. but thanks for thanks for kiss, teaching my kid how to sing. Yeah, I thought that scene where all the kids come into her bedroom was very inappropriate. And, <laughs> like, her doctor was there to examine her, and all the kids came in and were like, you're not coming! Like, <laughs> that was weird. And, yeah, I could have done without all of the children's songs. Yeah, what was that about? I don't know, because I didn't know that wasn't Deborah Carr singing, so I assumed it was just an excuse for her to show off her voice, but now that I know it's not her voice, I'm no, like, it wasn't her pointless. I'm not sure what the point was. I don't know. What did you think of the fact that Terry and Nikki's first kiss on the boat was off screen? Like, Oh my god, I loved that. I <laughs> loved that shot so Me much. Me too. <laughs> And then, like, to couple that, or off-screen kiss, with the fact that then they're, like, you know, there's the scene later where she's coming down the stairs, and she's, like, you know, like, basically won't let him on the stairs with her, and so he has to, like, walk around the staircase, as if that's any less, like, conspicuous, (laughs) to have some guy just, like, randomly walking in circles around the steps, and then they're, like, talking about stuff. Um, I just loved all of that, like, the use of the staircase. Yeah, I thought it was kind of ridiculous on the boat how everyone was so obsessed with them. Like, when they were seated at the singles tables next to each other, people laughed for, like, five minutes. Yeah, it was so rude. Like, if I were them, I'd be like, like, it it seemed like it was so loud. I would be like, you guys are so rude, we're leaving. Yeah, that's what I, and, like, wouldn't the staff try to... Like, give them privacy or do something to stem that? You'd think. I don't know. It was so, like, it was so weird. (laughs) And the whole thing with the pictures being taken of them, I thought that was going to be, that was like a Chekhov's gun to me. Because I was like, all right, their fiancés are going to see those pictures in, like, society pages or something. But it never came back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That never came back. What Did you like the swimming scene? Oh my god. I think that was the point. That was the point where I wrote and started writing in capital letters, Carrie Grant in swim trunks. Carrie with a dog. (laughs) Carrie speaking French. Oh. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, he looks great in his swim trunks. And now that I know he's in his 50s, I'm even more impressed. (laughs) I know. Deborah Carr looked really cute too in her yellow swimsuit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I'm totally here for that swim scene. Because they're so like... Like, how dare you be in this swimming pool on this boat that's in the middle of the ocean? Oh, I guess we have to talk to each other now. So adorable. Did you think that... So when they first met and she's like, oh, I have your cigarette case. Mm -hmm. Did you think she was nagging him? I actually don't really know what nagging is. It's like when you insult 
people to flirt with them and get them to it's usually done by a man and it's sort of to like change the power dynamic so that the woman uh, is trying to like then ingratiate themselves with you oh i mean it to me i totally read that as like a like a survival tactic that she like <sighs> cultivated since she was a nightclub singer and probably had like lots of come-ons that she didn't want so that she just like cultivated this like fast-talking like wise-cracking attitude that, like whenever she met men to so that like to keep them at bay and just kind of like stay and stay on top so that she wasn't like taken advantage of all the time well that makes sense it, it was interesting to me how as soon as he met her, he was like, well, no one else on board was attractive. So thank goodness I found you. And I was like, <laughs> looks like there's a lot of attractive people. I know. <laughs> I know. I don't know what, I mean, maybe he wanted someone who was also like witty and intelligent, but. Yeah. I want to think that he was attracted by her like witticisms, but like she was, he was attracted by the fact that he, she was just like. I don't care who you are <laughs> at all. <laughs> if you if you are if you start to sexually harass me, I am done. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about how she said she couldn't go to his room, but it was okay for him to come to her room? I, was I like, don't what even difference know. Difference does it make? I don't, You're with I a don't. strange man. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I know that that seemed like a. Very flimsy excuse. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of the two fiancés? I mean, I thought the guy was surprisingly sympathetic when she was like, she comes back from being away for however long she is and is like, I am in love with this man. He was like, well, what are you going to do? But he wasn't like in a rage. He was like, you know, he was like, oh, like suddenly I'm your like gay best friend. What are you going to do and how can I support you? Which I was surprised about. And I, we don't really, like, see how he breaks up with Lois. But, like, clearly there's still, there's some kind of amicable, like, separation. Because, like, the first minute, the first chance she has, she's like, oh, you know, take me to the ballet or whatever. Yeah, she seemed to me like she was kind of just waiting for him to come back around. Mm-hmm. Her fiance, Ken, I think his name was, was, like, angelic. So when she described him on the boat to Nikki, he sounded like kind of a jerk. She was like, he thinks I'm dumb and all this stuff. And then we meet him and he's actually really nice. Mm -hmm. And he like stands by her, even though Mm -hmm. she's not in love with him and Mm -hmm. she's pining after someone else. And he just like, you know, helps her through her illness. I was surprised. Well, it is surprising, especially when we're like the movie is set up with like the only other like real male figure is this guy who's a womanizer and a playboy. Yeah. So it's hard to believe that he, that she wants to be with Nikki and not this guy who's just, like, kind. And, like, eventually, like, stands by her, even though she, like, is, like, recovering from a terrible accident. Yeah. And it is, like, actively encouraging her to get back together with the other guy. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little bit mystifying. (laughs) I hope Lois married him. Yeah. Actually, that would have been good. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Are you ready to talk social justice? Sure. (laughs) Uh, Did you think there was any in this movie? There were some, like, undertones about class in this movie. 
because she, you know she talks about how she was from Boston and she was in an you know singing in a nightclub and partly why she like is like connected with Ken her fiance is because he like saw her in the nightclub and was like you don't belong here. You belong, like, in a nice apartment in New York City. And so he, like, you know, brings her to New York City and, you know, she basically, like, gets finished, you know, is able to, like, live a kind of society life because of him and is kind of, like, lifted out of lower class obscurity. You know, then when she's in the French villa, the th- one of the things that the grandmother likes about her is that she doesn't mind, like, you know, carrying the tea tray and, like helping her up, you know, a little bit. And she's like, well, I had <laughs> nine siblings. So, you know, if I didn't help, I wasn't going to eat. It speaks to like a, an undertone of like, you know, she understands what it's like to be poor and you know, have to work. It, it just occurred to me. Do you think that she was kind of like a kept woman? Oh yeah, totally. Okay. I think because that was it... why she was like, that's why she needed six months was so that she could get out of her like, I think they were both very accustomed to the, like, the lives they were leading with their fiancés, and that's why they didn't just, like, bag it all and stay at Grandma's house. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, like, I I think initially I didn't get the fact that she was probably kind of like a the mistress to, well, I mean, they were engaged, but, like, she said five years with him. Yeah. And if she was living that lavish lifestyle, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, that's true that that there that was a class element and she does like she had a job as a singer and then she got a job as a teacher mm-hmm. so that she was working mm-hmm. um, um in the school scene where they're singing and then like the only two black kids in the class oh God. come down <laughs> and do like a soft shoot that was so like excruciating so like yeah. that <laughs> Stuck out to me as a very non-social justice moment. Yeah, right. You're like, okay, you are very of your time of 1957. You don't think that there's anything, like, bizarre about this. And I also think there's a certain... So, like, back to the fact that they could have just been together right away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They both... They don't even discuss the possibility. Like, they immediately just say as if it's a fact we're accustomed to high-end lifestyles. And so we can't be together unless we maintain those lifestyles. They don't discuss the possibility of just, like, being together right away and struggling. Yeah, struggling or, like, being together right away, not in New York City, but in France. Because, like, it seems pretty clear to me that, like, they could have, like, snapped their fingers and been like, hey, Janu, we're gonna come stay in your spare bedroom for a minute. Is that okay? And she would have been like, of course. (laughs) Yeah, she would have been like, great, live with me. Like, I'll have some wonderful great-grandbabies. Yeah. Like, we can go to the chapel every day and you'll serve tea. That sounds lovely. (laughs) (laughs) And no one needs to make any money. Um, Yeah, you know, in this little piece of heaven that she, like, she says, this is like a piece of heaven. Like, why didn't you just move there? You clearly didn't have anything specifically tying you to New York City. So you could have moved to the villa that somebody in your family already owns. <laughs> yeah, and then also, what happens to the villa when she dies? You think they're going to go back to the villa? Well, who knows? Or, like, it, if it gets sold, then he has money. So, like, I don't yeah, understand what the... There are so many things about that six-month thing that I was like, this seems bizarre. Yeah. 
And that trope, trope comes up in so many movies now, like other rom-coms where it's like, well, we both have other significant others, but this seems like serendipity. So if like XYZ happens in six months, then we'll be together. Yeah, <laughs> you're was, basically um, like saying, universe, prove to me that this isn't serendipity. Yeah. It's just like it, crazy. Taking the choice out again. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. But anyway, well, what about Bechtel? I guess there are conversations between the grandmother and Terry that are not directly about Nikki, but I think they're all circuitously about Nikki, right? I mean, I was almost going to say I think it passes, because they talk some just about life. And, like, she talks about her life. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. At least it's like two women like having extended conversation, and it's not specifically about like, are you gonna get this man? Are you gonna get this man? I guess you could say too that they're both like they both care very deeply about the same man, and so the thing that brings them them together is this man. But like that's the thing that brings them them together. But they have a connection that's like deeper than that. Yeah. Okay, sure. So it passes the Bechdel test? Yeah, I think I think it does. I don't think it's a super feminist movie or anything, but <laughs> and it's funny how like they say, Oh yeah, we need to maintain our lifestyle but you know, only he has to be concerned about making money. Although she does get a real job. So yeah, I mean, she gets like, a legit job. She, she gets has, a better job than he does. She has an actual job. He does not have an actual job. So, I mean, a painting. Like, would that, that make actual money? But, you know, she, yeah, she actually is like, oh, I can't sing in a nightclub anymore. I'm going to go find a job teaching. Or I'm going to, like, let this priest get me a job teaching in a school. She does have a real job. Yeah. Tell me confidentially. Are these rumors true that wedding bells are soon to ring for you and Lena? I mean, this can lead straight into our Twitter Q&A, which is what the heck is happening with Nikki's finances. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that he has an agent, but he hasn't been painting. And he's... It, painting is like the thing that your parents beg you not to go into because it doesn't make money. <laughs> and well, it's impossible to make it. Well, and it, and then he's like, not only is he like, I'm going to make money by painting, but I'm not going to put my real name on it because I'm going to make it for, I want to make it for the painting's sake. I'm like, no, you're t- getting the job for the money's sake so that you can get, so you can get together with this woman that you love. Put your name on yeah. it. <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any no sense. sense. No, no sets at all. And like, hell, all he has to do is say, I'm Nikki Ferrante, come over to my house, pay me X yeah. amount of dollars. Yeah, we'll take a picture together. Right. <laughs> Let me give some interviews to some things for X amount of money. Like, there's so many, he just, it's like, he's like, I'm going to make some money, but not in a smart way. <laughs> and I still find it very hard to believe that he didn't have any money to begin with, because why is he so famous? Like, what is he famous for? Being as beautiful as Cary Grant? Because, like, you can be a player all over the world and nobody cares. You need to be something else. (laughs) You need to be rich or you need to be, like, a film star or, like, something. So, first of all, I don't (laughs) don't believe that he's poor. And second of all, his 
plan for how to make money is the worst plan ever. Ever. <laughs> It'll be like me quitting my job and be like, all right, I'm going to write poetry <laughs> under a pseudonym, and that's how I'm going to support my family. <laughs> that is basically exactly like what it would be. Like, I don't even know. It would be like Chrissy Teigen being like, yeah, I'm not going to be a model anymore. I'm going to write cookbook recipes, but God forbid I use my name. And somehow yeah. think that, that you're going to make money based on your talent as a cookbook writer. That would never happen in a million... She would never get published. So, let's just... Like, he should have done, like, product endorsements or something. Oh, yeah. Which they He could did. have been in, like, an ad for something, manly. Yes. yes, he could have been a model. Been like, you can use my my uh, image for X amount of dollars. We should be All financial right. advisors for Craig Green's characters. Uh, yeah. Can that be our spin-off in... podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we need to get in the proximity of Carrie Grant. <laughs> um, but I, I felt like we both needed to get that off our chest. So <laughs> <laughs> Hillary, what rating would you give this movie? I feel of two minds of this movie. I really enjoyed the like wisecracking, fast-talking like interactions between Deborah Carr and Cary Grant. I think they were wonderful actors who, like, made the most of their characters. I want to, like, give their performances and their embodiment of those characters, like, four stars. Overall, I give the movie, like, two stars. Hmm. So, like, average out to three, I guess. Interesting. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's we of... got to the, like, <laughs> we were 30 minutes from the movie and we were like, why is this movie not over yet? What is happening? <laughs> yeah it's like i give the movie two stars <laughs> but i got yeah. to watch deborah carr and gary grant so i agree that like they're they were the strength of the movie and i actually was surprised that like for the reputation this movie has that i didn't like it like the actual romance mm-hmm. and love story mm-hmm. i yeah i wasn't super bought into mm-hmm. so I don't know. I mean, I was going to give it, like, a three as well, just because mm-hmm. I thought the performance... I also thought the costumes were really good in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I might even go down to a two and a half, because I don't think I would rewatch it. No, I think... And it makes me want to watch other Deborah Carr movies. It, I don't yes. want to watch this movie ever again, I don't think. But I, it makes me want to watch other Deborah Carr movies where she's not singing. I mean, she, in quotes, singing... We should watch Heaven Help Mr. Allison. Yes. It is about a um, a nun and a pilot being uh-huh. shot down onto a Japanese island mm-hmm. and falling in love, but they could never be together, and it's awesome. <laughs> that now, that's a romance I buy into. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I'm going to go with two and a half. Okay. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we can say we agree on that. Yeah. So what's our next movie? So, the next movie does not have Deborah Carr or Cary Grant in it, but it does have Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in it. Our next Mm. movie is Adam's Rib. Oh my gosh. Oh, and our next movie is our 50th episode, so we're going to be doing some special things for that. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter, at The Screen Sirens, and leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.